don't forget, you heard it from me. The zone in the Fairfax district is a pop-up dedicated to all things Britney. Fans will get to experience what it's like to go on tour and be in some of Britney's most iconic music videos. The zone is now open. Just open today, January 31st, 2020. I'm JD and this is the weekend drive home from Modern Feed, essential listing handpicked for a well-needed weekend. By the way, that Britney number is from the CBS LA Rundown podcast. It's in your playlist below, but you don't need to listen to it. If you want to go to that thing, it's on 3rd and Fairfax in that old building that used to be the Kmart. That gigantic thing has been turned into a, a pink palace. My sister and I walked by it. We couldn't believe it. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Today, we've got controversy, but it's very interesting. We're going to take our maiden voyage into the wonderful world of foodie podcast and something from my friend, Anna Ferris. Well, we're not really friends, but I think we would be And a little treat from Elon Musk. And in your playlist below, I've placed the catch and kill podcast this week's episode. In case you missed it earlier, it'll give you a little dose of true crime. Let's do it. It's going to be a great drive and an even better weekend. As you may know, American Dirt is the novel written by the New York author Janine Cummings. And this week, the controversy around this book became so big that her publisher canceled her entire 40-city book tour, meaning that she won't be at your local Barnes & Noble if it still exists. But through the world of podcasts, I brought her to you. Yes, last week she was on the Guardian Books podcast explaining what she intended with this novel. Here's a taste. It's in your playlist below. Well, actually, I resisted telling a story set in Mexico for quite some time. I knew that I wanted to write about immigration and migration issues in the Americas. But I, I wasn't... I, I actually wrote two failed drafts of this book, I confess. I did that. Um, and the reason they were failed drafts was because I was trying not to set a book entirely in Mexico. I was trying to write about characters who were more familiar to me. So the first couple of drafts had a whole lot of extraneous people, like Border Patrol agents and people who encounter immigrants and people who interact with immigrants and also some immigrants, but it wasn't working. And I kept in frustration, stopping and starting. And at one stage, I just realized that I was trying to use an inappropriate lens to tell this story. And that the only people who really mattered in the story, in fact, were Lydia and Luca and Soledad and Rebecca. And explain who those characters are. They're the migrants. So Lydia and Luca, mother and son, who, yes. who, who witness a terrible the sort of destruction of their family and mm -hmm. have to escape very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the and the other migrants from different country that, Correct, that yeah. they encounter on the top of a train, more or less. Right, yeah. Um, you know, I decided to structure the book where Lydia and Luca are really the, the main characters, the two main protagonists. And I wanted, part of the reason that I wanted to tell this story was because I come from, like most people in the United States, I come from a family of mixed heritage, of mixed background. Um, some immigrants, some who have been in the United States forever, for well, not forever, but for a long time. And my grandmother was from Puerto Rico. And she was a woman who came from a really wealthy family, was very well-to-do, was very sort of posh and glamorous in Puerto Rico. 
And then she came to the United States and had a hard landing. She was like suddenly Puerto Rican, you know? And she was sort of angry about that for her entire adult life. And it had serious ramifications for her eight children, the oldest of whom was my father. And so I understood that there's something really damaging about the way white Americans reduce immigrants in their mind, um, the stereotypes that we place on these people. My grandmother's experience, you know, her new neighbors were so reductionist in their views of what she was supposed to be as a Puerto Rican. And I understood also sort of in my DNA that this is what we're doing to the migrants at our border right now, that we are painting them all with the same brush, that we tend to think of them all as one thing, as a sort of homogenous, rural, illiterate, poor, brown person. And in fact, that is not what they are. You know, they come from all different kinds of backgrounds, different countries, different languages, different socioeconomic situations, different experiences with violence and the cartels or gangs in their home countries. Um, and they're all traveling for their own reasons. And, and they're, they're individuals, you know. So that was a story that I really wanted to explore. And um, so to that end, it was important for me that Lydia be representative of a migrant story, but not necessarily the typical or stereotypical migrant story that we're used to hearing. And so I wanted her to be a middle class person that my readers could, they could become familiar with and recognize themselves and their own experiences in Lydia's life. Because I well, you heard that right from the horse's mouth, but let me break this down just a little. A lot of people were up in arms thinking that it wasn't appropriate for Janine Cummings to tell the story of Mexican migrants coming across the border. Let's hear what the New York Times had to say. Here's a clip from inside the New York Times book review. It's a great podcast every week talking about books, and it'll make you sound like an expert even if you're not reading. Here's a taste. It's in your playlist below. The criticism, I think, really took everyone off guard, at least the the degree of it. Let's, so, let's give people a thumbnail sketch of absolutely, the criticism. Absolutely, yeah. So I think this was something the author anticipated when she decided to write a novel about the immigration crisis at the border and the migrant experience. The author, as she says in her author's note, she is not Mexican and she is not a migrant, but she felt moved to write about the subject, and she knew that was kind of a fraught position to be in. It was something she spoke about with me when I interviewed her, which was in December before the criticism really mounted, although there were hints of it. And I certainly spoke to people who had strong views about the book and and the way that she portrayed the migrant experience. So a lot of the criticism is about what people see as stereotypical portrayals of the migrant experience of Mexicans of Mexico in the book. But I think what's become more interesting, I guess, to me is the someone who covers the publishing industry is the book has really become this flashpoint for these very deeply embedded issues in the publishing industry, the lack of diversity in the ranks of the publishing industry, you know, that it's still, although there's been a great effort to publish more diverse voices and authors, the industry itself and its editorial ranks is extremely white and people point that out as one of the reasons this book, the rollout, the marketing behind it, there were, you know, people felt that it was done in a very insensitive way. It was positioned as the defining book on this issue, and it was written by... Don't cry for Janine Cummings, though. She got a million-dollar advance. She already sold the film rights. 
And after Oprah chose American Dirt as her selection in the Oprah Book Club, it immediately this week became number one on the Times bestsellers. Now, Oprah, no stranger to controversy this week, got pulled into this. And I want to share some audio from her Instagram. It, the sound quality is not great because she's in her kitchen or a set that looks like her kitchen. But it's brilliant how she skillfully turns lemon into lemonade, turning this into a promotion for her March Apple TV Plus show. Check this out. Deeply moved. It had me riveted from the very first sentence and I could hardly wait, really, to share it with all of you. Now, it has become clear to me from the outpouring, may I say, of very passionate opinions that this selection has struck an emotional chord and created a need for a deeper, more substantive discussion. So when I first started to hear your comments opposing the selection, I was asking the question in earnest, like what is offensive. I've spent the past few days listening to members of the Latinx community to get a greater understanding of their concerns. And I hear them, I do. So what I wanna do is bring people together from all sides to talk about this book and who gets to publish what stories. And I'm hoping that that is going to resonate with many of you and your concerns. And this is gonna stream on Apple TV Plus in March. And I think it's gonna allow us to open up the conversation in unexpected and I really hope meaningful ways. It's almost the weekend, so let's move from eating dirt to just plain eating. I love foodie podcasts, which is kind of funny because there's not a goddamn thing I've ever cooked. And aside from being an, an accomplished grill master, I eat every meal in restaurants. But great food is like great art and great foodie podcasts are like great hors d'oeuvres. Over time, I'll share some amazing foodie podcasts with you. Whether it's KCRW's Good Food, Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance, the Menu from Monocle, Dave Chang's show, Where Y'all Eat from New Orleans, or Eater's Podcast. There's a ton of them out there, and I'll share the very best. Now, one of the very best is Milk Street Radio, and it's great because the host, Christopher Kimball, is so terrific. Now, you probably know Christopher Kimball from his previous life as creator of PBS's America's Test Kitchen. You know, the show, the podcast, the magazine, Cooks on Illustrated. It's great how he brought together science and cooking, really breaking down recipes and gadgets and tips and tricks. Well, America's Test Kitchen still exists. It's still out there as a podcast, but Milk Street Radio is even Technical snafu, Milk Street Radio is even better because it's got Christopher Kimball. Now, I want to share two great segments from today's show. The first takes us back to my Wisconsin roots. Yes, Chris's first guest is called Ron Faola, and he's visited hundreds of Wisconsin's supper clubs, publishing two books and becoming the foremost expert on this important American and Wisconsin tradition of supper clubs. Here's a taste, obviously. It's in your playlist below. Give it a listen. Ron, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, well, thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Uh, Wisconsin supper clubs. I never heard of these before. You know, in, in New England, we have hunting clubs where you 
have a game dinner in February or something. Uh, but these are something quite different. So what is a supper club? Well, a Wisconsin-style supper club is a place that's family-run, and the family often lives on the premises. They're known for their regular menus of Friday night fish fry, Saturday prime ribs, Sunday would be roasted chicken and ribs probably. And because it's family-run, a lot of times you'll come up to the door and they'll say, close for a week, we're out hunting. So how did these get started? Was this sort of a speakeasy concept? It was about alcohol, or how did, how did they get started? Well, actually, yeah, they got started in New York City, really, um, with speakeasies during Prohibition. Actually, I found a menu from a Golden Pheasant Supper Club in Lake Chautauqua, New York, and hmm. it was from 1925. But these places, in Wisconsin at least, were in remote locations where right. having something to drink— was pretty easy to do. So Supper Club, uh, what does it look like inside? I, I have a, what I call my holy trinity of decorations is twinkly lights, some taxidermy, and dark <laughs> paneling on the walls. <laughs> and any one of those. Ah, I can taste Friday night fish fry in Maisomany, or is that in Waukesha, or Stoughton, or Milwaukee? Okay, his second guest is a guy called Bill Schindler, who's the host of the National Geographic show, The Great Human Race, which I've actually never seen, but I'm gonna watch now. Bill travels to remote locations, living like our ancestors did 40,000 years ago. Now, listen to this clip. Bill is out there living like a caveman. Don't do this at home, but listen to it. It's in your playlist below. Here's a taste. Traffic. You go somewhere for seven or eight days, different places in the world and live as if it was, you know, prehistoric 40,000 years ago. Um, during those periods, were you able to really learn something useful by having to put those skills into use for real? Or is it really more of a show? I absolutely got a ton out of this. Now, we, certainly the focus for the show was to portray to the viewer what life would have been like in the past. But for me, it was a, a, a major educational experience on a lot of levels. So, of course, you know, seven or eight days is not the amount of time that I would have starved to death. It's long enough to be scared. It's long enough to be hungry. And it's long enough to get very cold, as you were in Siberia, I think. <laughs> um, there's one show where a lion has brought down a kill. You have a, a half-eaten carcass. You're trying to grab some meat. I would think with lions around with a carcass, that would be a fairly, I mean, actually dangerous situation. Was that actually a dangerous situation? What you saw on that screen was what was happening in, in real life for us while we were there. So we ran in. We had, At that point, we were several days into, into filming this first episode, and I was probably hungrier than I have been in my entire life. And all of a sudden, this carcass is there. I had a stone tool in my hand. And what we were representing there was actually what our ancestors had been doing. How's that for a cliffhanger? Wondering what he did with that stone tool to that carcass? It's in your playlist below. I've left you a little breadcrumb to get to it, though. Now, if you don't already have a weekend smile on your face, this next podcast is sure to deliver every time. Anna Ferris. I love her. I don't know why, I just do. And her show, Anna Ferris is Unqualified, is a hoot. Makes me laugh every time I listen to it. On this week, 
She has Melissa Villasenor as her guest, the actress, comedian, impressionist who's been on SNL now for four seasons. Melissa is a master of impressions, and the whole podcast is a ball, I promise. Here's a three-minute extended clip. The full episode is in your playlist below. Enjoy. Oh, okay. I know you've talked before about your favorite impressions, but do you have like a secret favorite? Um, my favorite one, I think right now, is Steve Buscemi. The voice isn't perfect, but I like making his facial expressions. I have a bit about why I love Buscemi so much. Why? He just goes with the flow of life. All his characters are this. Is it? I guess we'll do that. And I, I was like, damn, I just love that too. Listeners, I have to. It, I, I wish I could I know. show you what Melissa's doing for their face right now. <laughs> she's like kind of backing away from the camera. She's taking it all in. She's like arching her eyebrows, but not really, not without like a ton of investment. It's amazing. Yeah, it's my favorite bit too. It's because it just makes me feel good. I embody Buscemi in my soul and my heart when people make me feel bad for not living up to society's rules. You know, like when people say like, why would you let your gray hair grow on your bangs? I'll go, sometimes want to look like a skunk. And then my mom, if she looks at me and says, hey, take care of your mustache. It's growing in. I'll say like, fine, I'll comb it. (laughs) (laughs) Will you help me with my Gwen Stefani? Oh, yeah. I've never done this out loud. <laughs> Don't speak. I know just what you're feeling. Think. Help me, help me, help me. Please, Melissa, please. Your face you're making is really good. Okay. Don't speak. Don't speak. I know just what you're saying. So please stop explaining. Don't tell me cause it hurts. No, no, don't speak. I know what you're thinking. And I don't need your reasons. Don't tell me cause it hurts. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that was one of, oh, that's one of the impressions I did. Yeah. I what? love, uh, no, Gwen Stefani, man. That's my yeah one of the best. Yes, you're right because she. It's like it's a little she has bit this, of a baby voice. This sexiest cold. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's what it is. It's like, damn, how does somebody get a super fucking sexy cold? Don't speak. Right? You really lovely underneath. Oh, you oh my god. To oh. Love. But I also love school. like the old, like their first album, No Doubt's first album, where she was like that ska, like she would just. Oh. Um, she had like, open cute the gate up, open the gate. The total hate with Sublime is so good too. Oh, but didn't it frustrate, like any guy I had a crush on, it was like he was in love with Gwen Stefani and I was couldn't just. even. I was just like, And that's it, my friends. I leave you today with something totally unexpected just out yesterday. The new single from Elon Musk called Don't Doubt Your Vibe. I shit you not. Just Google Don't Doubt Your your Vibe. It's available on SoundCloud. Have a great weekend. I hope to see some of you characters. And if not, hit me. Tell me, did you love this? Did you hate that? Do you want more of this? Do you want more of that? Do you want to just less of everything? Have a great weekend. Bye-bye.